G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. I met a strange lady, she made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, do you come from a land down under? The worst kept secret in Australian music is that all of our rock icons are actually Scottish. <laughs> My guest today is at the top of the tree, penning and performing indelible rock standards with his band Men at Work, His flame burned brightly but briefly before he packed up 30 years ago for California, embarking on the second act of his career as an endlessly fascinating troubadour whose shows are as renowned for his wicked wit as his deep and arresting songs, and on a series of acclaimed solo records, most recently 2017's Fierce Mercy. In recent years, he's also been hitting the road as a key member of Ringo Starr's supergroup, The All-Star Band. You know, I try not to put things in perspectives, he once said. I don't find that as a worthwhile exercise to put things in perspective. It never really seems to work out. Colin Hay, welcome to my favourite album. Oh, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Did I actually say I don't think I, I like to put things in perspective? Oh, you said <laughs> you don't like to put things in perspective. I don't like to put things in perspective. Oh, yeah. I wonder why I said that. I don't know. Maybe it's time to put that no in idea. perspective. <laughs> Colin, what is your favourite album? Well, you asked me to prepare an album and I have... I wouldn't say that I have one favourite album at all. There's many, many favourite albums that I have. There's too many to pick one. But the reason that I picked this one, it's an album called Dirt Floor by Chris Whitley, is because I have a mutual friend who turned me on to this record. I think it was like 97 or something like that, 97, 98. When I was living here in Los Angeles and, you know, Chris Whitley was known for, you know, he had quite big productions before that of records. And this record came along and I just listened to it. And it was at a particular time in my life when I was living here and I was playing it down at Largo in Hollywood. And I just listened to this record. And to me, it was an amazing piece of work just because it was a guy sitting there in a room, sounded like he was just in the one room the whole time. Bare, bare, bare production and sang these songs playing the most beautiful, interesting guitar, some acoustic, some banjo guitar, some slide and things. And it was just like, to me, a, a really complete... Every song to me was, was beautiful. And it just I just kept playing it, kept playing it for, for ages. And I just found it quite inspirational and a record that I kept going back to as far as... This is the point you can either always return to or, or spring from, you know, just playing a great song, singing it, and getting better at playing guitar. I found, I think that's one of the main reasons I really loved it was his guitar playing was so immaculate. It wasn't so much that it was immaculate, it was just really interesting and innovative and unique. Brilliant guy. Was there's a floor underneath here Till we receive us when change is fair it's an idea that I feel like gets returned to over the years by different artists like this, like the idea of going as far as you can go with the sort of bigger production thing and then 
comparing things back to the basics of just great songs and a great performance in a sort of acoustic mode. The obvious comparison, I guess, would be Bruce Springsteen with the Nebraska album. But this is a record that after the stuff he'd done with Daniel Lanois, as you said, it's just Chris Whitley. It's in his father's barn, just right. him in that one room yeah. making the whole thing. Yeah, it's extraordinary in that sense. And I think sometimes a lot of people think that returning to, say, a very basic way of recording or returning to a very simple recording setup and production is a conscious thing. And sometimes it's just really circumstantial. Sometimes you just find yourself in a situation where it seems like the only thing you can do to move forward. So it's not really, oh, I'm going to pair things back. It's just like all you're left with is yourself. Right. You have nothing else. You don't have a record label. You don't have a an agent to book shows. And I don't really know whether this was the case with Chris Whitley, but I haven't really looked into it that much. But but often that's the way where you, you sometimes you do your best work where it's not really a conscious thing. You're just going, it's a survival technique. It's a way to creatively express yourself and avoid going mad, you know, because maybe you don't have those things around you anymore. Or maybe you thought they were more important than they really were. But it's just a way of going, okay, I'm going to, you know, sing and play my way out of this situation. And there's no one else around. Okay, so, you know, I'll do it myself, you know, because this is what I have. This is what I've always had, you know, and this is what I'll always have. Is that sort of something you were thinking about or a situation you found yourself in when you came over here after the band had broken up and you were doing your solo thing and doing, I guess, solo acoustic touring for the first time at a certain point? Yeah, well, it's certainly the case with me where when I came over, when I first came over, of course, we had big corporate structures behind us. I mean, they, they pretty much left us alone. We never really considered ourselves anyway to be victims of a large corporate structure, although in the end we were because the, the deal that Men at Work had originally was a horrendous, horrendous, almost a criminal deal that we had, which is the case for a lot of people. But when I came over here in, I think it was 89, I was moving from Columbia to MCA Records, which in many ways was a mistake. But the advice that I got at the time was from everybody, from managers and accountants and advisors of various kinds, was because this deal was being offered was a very good deal, so I should take it. So I made one record for MCA Records in 89, 90. And then got dropped, which wasn't really a bad thing, I suppose, because you don't really want to be where you're not wanted. I don't think Columbia were particularly interested. They didn't really know what to do with me after my first solo record didn't work. And then, well, the last Met at Work album didn't work. And then my first solo record didn't work commercially. So I went across to MCA and that one didn't work. So I ended up by myself. And, and so what I really learned from that was, or what I thought from that was, I'm probably not really cut out to be with a big major record label you know that's really what I took from that so they let me go and I think it was 1991 so I found myself on my own so I didn't have any management and didn't have anything behind me at all didn't have an infrastructure of any kind so I just started playing guitar and singing and playing in clubs here and and then I thought well I'll just go on tour so I started going on tour I think as a way of trying to figure out my next step you know and that's just what I've continued to do for the last 25 or 30 years and, and I'm lucky because I wasn't poor you know so I, I didn't have to struggle and and you know get another job for example you know and to put food on the table so I've always been able to make a living out of playing music and I've got you know men at work to thank for that but it is confronting where there was very little crossover 
in terms of name recognition between men at work and my name. So people didn't really know who I was. And so I just, when I first started a tour, I was playing to 35, 40 people, 50 people. And then I would go back again and there'd be more people. So over the course of a couple of decades, it's grown. But along the way, you always have just have to ask yourself, is this satisfying? Is this, you know, are you trying to get somewhere? You know, that's the thing is you'd think to yourself, well, do I want to get back to those, you know, lofty peaks of superstardom or is this enough, you know, playing to these 250 people in a room? And you have to ask yourself that question because it's really important because otherwise if it's not enough, well, you're wasting your time and you're wasting everybody else's time as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why it started to work for me was that if I was going to go out on tour, I wanted to think about what it was that I was going to say to these people. That I'm performing to, you know, not just go, well, I'll play a few songs and see what happens. You know, I would think about the fact that they had to get up off the sofa and get into some mode of transport and go to this place, find a park and then make their way into this place and sit down and go, OK, give us what you've got. You know, so I wanted to try and make that worthwhile for them. Baby child up on your mama's knee Thirty-five angels looking after me They've been watching With eyes so wide In a sea of steel I seen a golden glow Screaming the message anyone could know Like a walking translation on a street of lies Singing these scrapyard lullabies Something I always find interesting doing this show is that like nine times out of ten, someone picks a record to talk about. It's an album that came out when they were 12 or, you know, roughly something like that. And today we're talking about a record that came out. I'm not going to try and do the math about how old you were in 1998. But 1998, I was, about, I was in my 40s. I was 45. See, and that's unusual. Not only were you 45, you were, I guess, almost 20, uh, roughly about 20 years into your career as a like professional, yeah. you know, Semi-pro- semi-professional. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just really interesting that uh, you can be that much evolved as an artist and still a record can have this much of an impact on you. Yeah, it hit me hard, this record. Just at a particular time, I think, it stopped me in my tracks, you know, which I think is great. I mean, if you can do that, it's a wonderful thing. I always come back to it. I listened to it because when I, ha- I heard I was going to be talking to you, I went back and revisited it, and it still still holds up. And I listen to it now, and I just think, well, every song's a cracker. And the really, sometimes music of this style, melody is kind of given short shrift, or they tend to be like interesting lyrics, great playing, and kind of like, you know, rote melodies. But this is such a strong oh, yeah. melodic record. So melodic and it's so it's got so many things in it too. It has all the lines are curly. You know, there's all blues influence in there as well, but nothing is overstated, you know. But like you say, the melodies are I think in many ways the melodies are, are what cuts it apart from a lot of, you know, singer songwriter type music because you hear, you know, as soon as you see a guy He's going to sing a song and play the guitar. You think, okay, he's probably going to sing like this, and they usually do, you know. But this is surprising because it's very melodic in very surprising ways, you know. You said before that you hadn't sort of dug into the history of the record or like trivia or information about where Chris Whitley was when he made this record. Is there a reason for that? I mean, you've got this Beatles recording sessions book on the table in front of us. Obviously, there's some music that means a lot to you where you are interested in all the fine details. Just probably a bit of laziness, I think. 
in terms of, I'm not sure what his personal demons were. I know that later on, I think he passed away from cancer, I think, from memory. But I don't know what was going on just before this record. What label did it come out on, do you know? Classic Records. Mm, I don't know what that is. Maybe I mean, I sense, I sense that he and the record labels that he was signed to were perhaps not on the best terms. I'm not quite really sure what, what situation he was in when he made this record. But I'm just glad he made it. So probably just laziness, I'd say. Okay. Two-part question. Was there something about where you were at, either musically or in your life at the time, that made this particularly resonate with you then? And did it have any sort of impact on the music you made and sort of the immediate period after you became enamored with it? I think so. I think it made me feel that I could... You know, if I would listen to this record, after I'd finished listening to it, I was excited about just being on my own making music by myself and thinking that it's something that I that I could do and that I could excel at you know and it seemed to be more and more the older I got it seemed to be saying to me this is my natural game as well you know just to play guitar and sing without anyone else around me and yeah I was kind of I wouldn't say that I was struggling but I was you know trying to figure out things as I went, I'd been here since I was dropped in 1991, so I spent 13 years, which is quite a long time, from 1990 until 2003, before I had any interest from any record label. So quite a long time to just be kind of strutting around thinking, am I kidding myself, or are people interested, or should I keep doing this? And so I think this record came along at a time when I needed it to come along where I just thought, my God, this guy's got so much to offer, you know, and it just made me feel that the path that I was on was fine, you know, because it made me feel better about myself, you know, than anything else. Great. There's miles of stone jackhammer in my hand There's compromises I can't comprehend Was this a record that you had sort of stumbled upon yourself and you kind of had it as like a secret thing is probably the wrong way to phrase it, but like were there other people you were spending time with listening to it as well? Did you have friends who um, this record? Or? I have a close friend here in LA, a guy called Chad Fisher, and he's a producer and does a lot of work in, in television and played with me and he's a great friend and a great musician and a really a very good producer also. He had a friend, a girl that he went to, I think he went to college with, a, a girl called Karen Bryant, who is in the media business now. I think she worked for, I don't know where she is now, but she played me this record. She was the one that said, oh, you should listen to Dirt Floor by Chris Whitley. You'd, I think you'd like it, you know, so she was the first one that turned me on to it. And after I listened to it, no, I would play it for whoever I came across who I thought would like it. So I would share it with friends. But a lot of the time it was just really a nice kind of private thing I would have, you know, of just playing it when I was by myself. I would play it any time. It wouldn't matter when I played it. It worked. I guess is that part of the thing of like the beauty of the record is that it makes you feel comfortable as an isolated person? It makes you comfortable about being on your own? Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. I think there's something... I mean, I quite enjoy solitude, which is, you know, very different from feeling lonely. <laughs> yeah, the, the opposite. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, you mistake one for the other 
or you think, you know, it's that situation, it's that, it's almost that cliche, isn't it, where you can really feel lonely in a crowd, but you can really feel who you are in solitude sometimes, you know. You just, when you're by yourself, you have time and you have space to just be, to get out of your own way and just to, you know, be who you are. There's a lot to be said for stillness, you know. I think it also has to do with addiction, you know, and part of the reason why I came to the States was because living in Australia was difficult for me to give up a drinking, you know, and that was my particular Achilles heel, you know, I, I love to drink too much. And so I found it very challenging in Melbourne to give up. So I came here. Not that geography cures it or solves the problem, but it can help sometimes where you can wipe the slate clean and start again. And that's why this was a good move for me coming here because it let me do that. And so I think a record like this also helps in that regard, in the sense that it just lets you feel, it made me feel connected, you know, it connected with me, which I think is what all of us want on many levels, you know, to just feel like you're, you know, part of the universe in some way, you know, just to kind of go, okay, what place do I have in this, you know? Universe is rolling along, you know? And I think part of the problem that I had before was that I, I didn't really feel connected. I was just kind of, I wanted to get away from myself, you know, and so I think that coming here and also finding a record like this, it just made me feel more comfortable being, you know, not having to get outside yourself. It's more a feeling of just being, of becoming. I don't know whether we actually ever really totally ever become, you know, but it's like just growing into yourself. I think it's a lifetime's work, really, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's only done when you, I mean, it's done at the end. And then there's nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, or ju- just before the end. Yeah. Well, I, hope, I mean, that's the, yeah, that's that's the ideal the, scenario, the idea, just before the, the end. Scenario. Well, hang on, I'm not finished yet. Can I have another ticket? No, I'm sorry. End of the line. So Chris Whitley passed away very young. As you mentioned before, he had lung cancer. He, he was 45. Yeah. But that was seven years after this record came out. So did you ever cross paths with him or get to see him play? Never did. I never crossed paths with him and never saw him play live. I wish I had. Never did. It just never worked out. There was a couple of situations where I got close once in Melbourne and I couldn't make it. I was in a different town. So no, I never did. I've had conversations with other musicians before where there's been like an artist who's very important to them who they've never seen play because the nights that people play shows you're playing a show mm. somewhere else. Exactly. Is that true of like, are there other artists that you never got to see or haven't gotten to see because of that? Yes, I think that is the case. A lot of people I have seen who were important, but I never had a chance to see the Beatles, of course, because I was a little young, or they never came to where I was when I was still living in Scotland. I think most of the people that I really love, I think I've seen. I never saw Nina Simone. I would have liked to have seen her. Yeah. That seems, yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I didn't get to see her either, but, like, that feels like it would be a life-changing experience. Yeah. Being in the same room with her doing her thing. Yeah. I pray into the distance Let me out of these heavy clothes I beg Indian summer I need some return So hard to get warm now It's so easy to get burned down on the pavement, the laws are learned. It's so hard to get warm where it's so easy to give This is kind of an off-topic question, but I've been wondering about it. We were having this conversation before we started recording about 
Australians moving to other parts of the world. You moved to Australia from Scotland when you were 14, mm. am I getting that right? Mm. And then you moved here about 30 years ago. You've lived here for a long time. When you go back to Scotland, do Scottish people still think you sound Scottish? If I'm speaking how I normally speak, which is the way I'm speaking now, they think that I'm from somewhere else because it's not really a particularly strong Scottish accent, but it's closer to being Scottish than anything else. Yeah. But if I really put it on, you know, and go back the way I used to speak, you know, like I can play the role of being a Scottish person, you know, and then they will think I'm from there. But if I'm just speaking normally, I'm not sure. <laughs> I always find that dynamic really funny because I'm sure any random person you meet here in the States would never, for an instant, think that you didn't just have a really broad Scottish accent mm. and wouldn't, like, I don't know, maybe some people think you're Irish because people can't tell accents here. Yeah, or they think I'm an Australian accent because they think I'm from Australia. <laughs> and that's like, yeah, all Australians sound like this, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Although, I mean, many do. A lot of American people, too, they're not really particularly, they don't have a lot of, you know, the subtleties of accents have lost them in many ways, too. So they just think, oh, they associate you with somewhere. They go, oh, yeah, I can tell because of the accent. I get different things. In Nashville, when I'm in a Uber or a cab or whatever, I'll often get asked if I'm South African, yeah. English, Scottish, Irish, or Canadian, or New Zealand. Yeah, it's big. That's covering the world there. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the accent thing is interesting because when I first went to Australia, I always had a Scottish accent. Even all the way through growing up, I had a Scottish accent. I had a Scottish accent when I was at home with my mother and father. And then when I'd go out in the street, I'd speak like an Australian bloke just to assimilate. That's a good Australian accent. Because oh, I didn't want to be different, mate, you know. I wanted to be the same as everybody else. So I just, I just learned how to speak like an Australian just to avoid, where are you from, mate? I just didn't want to deal with it. But when I'd go home to my mother and father, I'd just start speaking like this. It was just a, a, an automatic thing. And my sister did the same. But my, my brother, who was four years older, he always did the Scottish accent and never changed to become an Australian accent. So I, growing up, I had two accents. When I was out being an Australian fella, I was Australian. And then when I was home, I was a Scottish guy, and accent-wise. And then when I left Australia, the Australian accent just disappeared. I find that kind of interesting, Not maybe not to anybody else, but it was interesting to me, the fact that when I came over here in 89, the Australian accent just kind of went away. It was like somebody pressed a reset button and the Scottish one was the one that remained. And everyone who kind of I met related to me more as a Scottish person than a, or the accent-wise anyway. You know, if, if I met women, they seemed to, the Scottish accent was the one that they related to, you know. And the Australian one was a superimposition, if you like of who I was. I mean, I do feel Australian in many ways, you know, because I spent so much time there and, and I love going home and uh, there and I love, you know, there's many, you know, I, I had spent formative years there, you know, but I've been here for 30 years and so you, I feel like when I come back here, I'm lucky because whenever, whenever I go, I seem to be going home, you know, if I go back to the UK, I feel like I'm going home and if I go to Australia, I feel like I'm going home and when I come here, I feel like I'm going home as well. But I guess you've lived here longer now than you lived in Australia for. I've lived here longer than I've lived. I've lived in this house longer than I've lived anywhere. Wow. Yeah, long time. And Los Angeles is one of those curious places where time just seems to go into this big hole, you know, just floats by. I was going to be here for maybe a few months when I was making a record for MCA, and that was 89, and I'm just still here. So it's like, that's what happens when you come here. You think to yourself, a lot of people find this the same, where you come here just for a little while, 
and you think, oh, I could never live here really, you know, permanently. And then you just, it's hard to leave. Yeah, I mean, a friend of mine came up here in 1970-something from Florida to do some recording sessions and mm. he hasn't left. Right. <laughs> Although I guess it's also that thing of like, everyone here is, well, a lot of people here are from somewhere else. It's kind of a transient place. Yeah. It's a good place to be leaving from or going or to. Or it's a destination point as well, you know, yeah. because people come here to realize themselves in many ways. And I think that's what I did when I think about it. And it really put me on a good path, I think. The good thing about it is that nobody really cares about you. I mean, they do, but you have to get to know people first. But when you, there's not really the same support system that you have where you're from because you have ties and you have your family and you have your friends and you have this geographical and emotional support system. Whereas you come here and you've just got none of that and you just have to do things on your own. But I used to find that I would be driving down the 101 freeway and I would just have these moments of incredible euphoria which would just, they would be fleeting and then they would just go, but I would just go, oh, I'm in this magical place, you know? And I kind of still feel that in many ways. It's just a place where you can do things creatively. You can do that anywhere, but I just found it a particular place where you're allowed to do that. I think also, you know, where you're living too is the same way, like you just mentioned before about being in Nashville is a place where you don't have to make excuses for what you do. You don't have to go, oh, yeah, you don't have to come across people who say, ridiculous you know stuff like oh yeah you, well you still still applying those old songs are you mate or are you gonna <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna <laughs> you giving that up or you doing something else now or yeah that's, that's the australian thing we were talking about before that's the thing it's like i mean it's america in general but it's very heightened and specific here this is the place where everyone's here to do something or to be something or to realize some dream that they've held since they were a, a kid yeah. which is a kind of an intoxicating yeah energy to have floating around and it's okay to strive for excellence yes exactly because as you say like you could i mean you literally make your records in your house you could have a house in nova scotia or wherever and do the same thing but yeah. it's nova scotia would be nice yeah. i like i like it there you know it's new scotland after all you know and it's a great place to play that's the one of the great things about going on tour i got all these places that are just fantastic There's so many amazing places in north america you know all tucked away and they've all got places where you play you know it's, it's an interesting way to make a living in that sense day after day it reappears night after night my heartbeat shows the fear ghosts appear Back another day. Do you have a favorite weird venue in America? A favorite venue that's not like the Ryman or Largo or something that's well known? There was a place that was, I think it might have been called the Grey Eagle or something like that. It was in Asheville, North Carolina. A few years ago I played there. It was just a it was just a great place. It was Bizarre. It was a bizarre little place. A lot of the places that I like to play were, you know, when I was coming up, you know, and, and I say coming up in the last 20 years, but before I was playing, you know, bigger rooms, I would play in all these small places in little towns, you know, like you know, play the Tractor Tavern in Seattle. But even the first Largo that I played in was 
you know, in 1991, that was my favourite place to play, just because I could play there, and I was allowed to play there, and it was just down the road, you know, well, down in Hollywood. At that particular time, too, it was, was a lot of other people playing there. It was a great, very creative time to be there. And John Bryan would play there, and still does, actually. And Elliot Smith, and then the, a lot of the comedy nights would happen there with Sarah Silverman and Zach Galifianakis and Mitch Hedberg. So that was pretty magical. I suffer a little bit, too, from you play places, and then you go, oh, that's a, that's a nice place. I'll remember that place. <laughs> <laughs> and then you don't. Well, it's hard to, like, remember the context of which city you're in. Like, the venues all kind of look like venues from the inside, I guess. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of great places. But the rooms are all good. If there's an audience in them, it works, you know. As long as you can get people in there and you've got a good sound guy you're traveling with, it always works. I mean, Largo is probably a good enough reason on its own to want to live in L.A. Well, it is for me because I've known Flanagan, who owns Largo, since 1990, I think. So that's quite a while that's almost when I first came here and he was trying to figure out what to do and he got that place, Largo, and ran it and said, will you come down here and play? I said, sure, you know, so that's an old friendship there and I can go down there and play pretty much whenever I feel like it, which I do from time to time and because it's moved now. But that's been a great environment to be part of, <clears throat> Largo, excuse me, fraternity, if you like, which has a lot of people. I was down there the other night and saw Pete Holmes and Bill Burr. It was amazing to see two people at the top of their game, you know, incredible. They were just trying out new stuff. Awesome. I mean, I guess that is kind of the ethos in a lot of way of that place. It's like you can, you know, experiment, try weird things, try new things, yeah. do stuff that you wouldn't do if you're like, okay, I'm here in Omaha and I won't be in Omaha yeah. again for two years, so I better mm -hmm. just give them the... Yeah, you do a lot of try out things and it gives you a license to do that. I mean, you know, technically you can... You know, you can do that anywhere, really. But it's always nice to play a cup, to play a few shows, and to figure out what you're going to take on tour with you. But yeah, I love playing there. It's great. I'm going to ask you a sort of general question and fill it in with whatever you want to talk about here. But just because I've been thinking, because you've got that Beatles Sessions book on the table here, you've been part of the all-star band with Ringo for, I'm actually not sure how many years now. Well, I've only done, I think, four tours. I think I did one in 2003, and then I did a television special with them in 2005, and then I did 2008. And then I didn't do it for 10 years after that. I, I didn't actually, to be honest, I didn't know how he could do without me. I was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, 10 years later, they asked me to come back. And I think Todd Rundgren couldn't, had conflicting tour. He was going to go out with his band, I think. So they had to find someone to replace him. So they asked me to come back, which was last year. So I did last year and then this year and I think uh, a bit of next year as well. So, uh, sorry, what was your question? Yeah, I don't know if there really was one in there. More of just like, it's an interesting thing to sort of step in and out of. And you kind of, I mean, it at least looks interesting from the outside, this thing of like, when you get in there, you're kind of 
situating yourself as kind of this element of rock and roll history because you're there and like it's such a everyone plays the hits kind of set list but the hits start with with a little help for my friends and yeah. yellow submarine the songs that like mm. you grew up loving as a, yeah. as a kid and then you're being kind of put on equal footing with that with mm. your songs and then the yeah. other people who are part of the group as well yeah it's really separate from what i do normally which is one of the great things about it you know because what I'm doing on my own is really, you know, you're trying to attract a bigger audience. You're trying to move forward. You're trying to, in many ways, the, the solo endeavors mean that you're really only as good as your last song. As far as I'm concerned, you know, because people who come and see you, they might want to hear Overkill or they might want to hear Down Under. But for the most part, my audience, they want to hear the last songs that I've come up with, which is fantastic for me because it means you can move forward and you have an audience which is quite prepared to move forward with you they're not particularly interested in sitting back and listening to stuff that they had 35 years ago so that's the joy of that you know and then when you go out with Ringo it's really the other side of the coin it's really just it's nostalgia and you're part of something as you say so it has a very surreal aspect to it because you're playing with Ringo and he's unique and there's only one of them he was in the Beatles for God's sake you know and then you have Greg Rowley, who played at Woodstock and played in the original Santana. And Luca Thur, who played Toto and still does play with Toto and played on just about every record you could think of in the 70s and 80s. And Hamish Stewart, you know, from Glasgow was, and, and also, well, last year, Graham Goldman was playing as well from 10CC. He was particularly interesting too, because he was a contemporary of the Beatles and wrote so many hit songs for the Yardbirds and Herman's Hermits and even before he was in 10cc. So that was a joy. And then Hamish, who I love, who played in Average White Band and all those songs, and Ringo. So you're a sideman for most of the night. You know, you're a sideman for everyone else's songs, and then they're sidemen for you when they're doing your songs. So it's like time out from your real life in a way. Yeah. You know, so you, you just take this time out and you go and play with Ringo and you get treated really well and you play three of your hits and you're really grateful. You've got those hits to play in the context of everybody else. And there's a great feeling of camaraderie and for a month you get to hang out with Ringo, which is beautiful. And is there a, I mean, you were kind of leading. I actually have, a, I actually have the, the title track on his new record. Yes, that's right. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> which I'm really psyched about. Yeah. What's my name? That's yeah. the name of the song. Yeah. yeah which I was listening to the other day. It's great. Okay, tell me about writing that with him. Well, I didn't write it with him, actually. I, I wrote it, it's a, kind of, an, well, I think a vaguely interesting story. I wrote a couple of songs on the last, in 2008, I wrote this song, or I'd half written this song, and he liked it. He said, hey, what's, hey, what's that song? You what's, what's that you're doing? I said, oh, it's an idea. He goes, oh, we should finish that. So I went up to his house, but I'd written a set of lyrics. And so I think that, probably that was a mistake you know I kind of I just got excited because I was going to go up and write with Ringo and he you know he could have thrown them out and used different lyrics or written them again but anyway we chatted a while after that and I said you're going to record that song and he goes no I said you wrote it you record it it's your song you wrote the whole song you know so I did but I had this other song that I'd written what's my name so I thought oh that was written as well that was written also so I didn't mention to him at the time that I had this other song and then I just forgot about it. I got on with my real life and, <laughs> and I wasn't asked to go back on the next tour and wasn't indeed for 10 years. So I just had this song floating around. But I'd mentioned to Brent Carpenter, who's Ringo's videographer, a couple of years ago. He said, oh, do you have anything for Ringo? He was trying to put something together for a birthday, I think. I said, oh, I wrote a song 
called What's My Name? He goes, oh, really? And then, then I forgot about it again. But he mentioned it to Ringo a while ago, or just maybe a few months ago. Ringo said, oh, I'm, a, I'm a song shy for the record. I need one more song. And Brent said, oh, you know, Colin's written a song called What's My Name? And he goes, really? I said, yeah. So he called me up and said, come up to the house. So I went up to the house and played it for him. And uh, he loved it. So I just recorded it there and then. And so he liked it and it became the title track of his new record. So that's how that happened. Cool. Do you remember the first time that you played one of your songs with Ringo playing drums on it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the song that I particularly remember playing with him, one of my songs, I mean, was, yeah. was Who Can It Be Now? And I, and I remember that because he really loved to play it, you know. And when he plays your songs, he really lays into it, you know, and he swings and it's it's something just great about Ringo getting off on playing your songs. It's like, it gives the song a rebirth, you know? Is there a moment initially where it's like, wait, this is my song, which I recorded a fair while ago. I've been playing forever and I know how the recording goes, but this sounds like Ringo. It's that Ringo sound from all of the stuff that Ringo's played on coming out of the drum kit. Or does it just sound like your song with a really good drummer playing on it? No, it sounds like Ringo. It sounds like both those things because Bissonette's playing as well. And so it sounds like the song's rocking, but Ringo always plays like Ringo. And there is a thing that he has, which is like no one else. So yes, yeah, both of those things. I can't stand it. I cannot stand it. I can't wait to see them walls falling down. But tell me, Jesus, why they run? Is it by the way of the woman, the weight of the gun? I got 15 minutes, now I just don't care. I'm gonna take this all for granted when I get there. I've been told there's a story I should ask you about. It may be an off-mic story, I'm not sure, about Paul McCartney doing the dishes. <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> I mean, I've got the time of you have. <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> Yeah, I've told on stage a lot. It's not a secret, but he came to see me play at Largo a long time ago, which I was incredibly excited about. So he took an album of mine off away and he liked it. And then he came back. It was when he was still with Heather Mills, actually, and he came to see me at the Canyon Club. They called and said, oh, we want to come to see you play. Next week, we see you're playing at the Canyon Club. I said, oh, great. So I had my band. And so they came, Paul McCartney and Heather and Heather's sister came to, I think she came on, maybe it was just, maybe it was just the two of them, I can't quite remember. Anyway, they came to the Canyon Club, and very exciting, and we finished the show, and there's a bar there, and we went to the bar, I said to the band, come up to the bar and meet Paul McCartney, so we went into the bar, and it looked like, it was kind of like The Shining, there was a bartender, and just him, <laughs> just him standing at the bar by himself, it was quite surreal. So we walked in, we walked over to him, and he goes, oh, there you are, fellas, great, yeah, really cool, yeah, great. And I said to the band, I said, there's Paul McCartney standing over there. So we held court for about an hour, and it was beautiful. And then I found myself standing with him, just by myself. And it's a bit confronting and to know what to say to a Beatle just when you're standing there. So I said, what are you doing over here at the moment in L.A.? He said, oh, I'm finishing a record, you know. I said, oh, yeah. I said, different these days, making records these days from how you used to make them back in the day, isn't it? Very different process. He goes, oh, yeah. And then he proceeded to tell me what it was like back in the old days, you know. And I, I kind of just stood there all night. He goes, yeah, we used to, I'd have a song, you know. And I'd go and pick up John and we'd get on the bus. 
where he'd have a song and I'd play him a song, he'd play me his song. We'd get to the studio and George and Ringo hadn't even heard the songs and so we'd play them. George would cop the chords and Ringo would tap drums on a table. And then a man with a white coat would come in and say, right lads, you're up. We'd have to go and play the song, record it. So a couple before lunch, a couple after lunch. Done, finished, fast, you know, really fast. I said, yeah, that is fast. And then there was a pause in the conversation and they said, we want to come to your house. I said, you want to come to my house? And they said, yeah. I said, oh. I said, I'm going on tour on Thursday. And they said, well, we'll come on Wednesday. I said, okay. I said, do you want me to make you something to eat? And he said, yeah. I said, so you could say you're coming for dinner then? And he said, yeah. I said, okay. So on the Wednesday, Heather came, she came a bit earlier to hang out and chat with Cecilia, my wife. And I was downstairs in the studio and I came up and he was coming down the driveway. You know, and I had one of those kind of private moments to myself where I just thought, Paul McCartney's walking down my driveway. You know, it was quite bizarre. And he goes, oh, there you are. I said, yeah, come in. Mind your step. So he came in and we're chatting about all things, Butlins holiday camps, Diana doors, you know, all kinds of things about Britain. And he goes, oh, I thought you were Australian. You're a jock, you know. Made them dinner and we're sitting around the table. You're having dinner, just a few people. And we finished having dinner. He picked up all the plates and walked into the kitchen. He started running all the plates under the tap. And I just had another private moment to myself, you know, where I just thought, Paul McCartney's doing my dishes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Lawyers and losers hold hands and hang around. If I took her now as the one for me. to change accordingly well Colin I have monopolized a bunch of your time yes um, so I'm going to wrap things up with the traditional right. closing question which is when you go back and listen to the album we were talking about several days ago when we started this conversation what's it like when you put dirt floor on now it's the same as it was back in 1998 I listened to it last night and I still love every track and I still, when I put it on, and this is a rare thing, I just want to, I want to hear every track. I go, oh yeah, this track, this is great. And I think this is a great track. And then I listen to the next track and I go, oh, this is great as well. Totally different. So yeah, it's, it's one of those eternal records. It's just one of those ones that will just hangs in for as long as you do. You know, it's, it's a beautiful piece of work, I think. Colin, thanks so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. minute now My ship is coming in I'll keep checking the horizon And I'll stand on the bow And feel the waves come crashing down. Well, that's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. 
Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Don't you understand? I already have a plan. I'm waiting for my real life to begin. My Favourite Album is a production of House Red Media. It's edited by Ellie Willoughby and produced by Georgia Mooney and myself, Jeremy Dillon. Suddenly, nothing happened But in my dreams I slew the dragon And down this beaten path Up this cobbled lane Walking in my own Just be here now Forget about the past Your mask is wearing thin Just let me throw one more dice I know that I can win I'm waiting for my real life See you, Barrella.